0: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today I'm welcoming Michael Shear, who's the White House correspondent for The New York Times. He won a Pulitzer, or was part of a team that won the Pulitzer for uh, their coverage of the pandemic and its health and economic consequences. Uh, most notably and relevant for our conversation today, Mike is the co-author of Border Wars, which is a book all about the Trump administration's uh, immigration policy and posture. So we're going to start on immigration, but then we'll talk more about Biden's larger political project, the 2024 election, uh, and potentially even Gaza, because there's some news there that Mike has reported on. Uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, great. Happy to be here, Robbie. That uh, uh, sounds like a fun conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start with uh, Gallup had a poll out this morning that showed that significantly more Americans name immigration as the top issue facing the United States. It's up even from a month ago, pretty significantly. Uh, and the Monmouth, Monmouth University had a poll out a couple of days ago that showed a majority of people even support a border wall uh, for the first time ever. So, okay, before we even get to the Biden administration policy, which is some really interesting uh, recent news, uh, what's driving this perception and how
1: much of it do you see as a reality at the border? I mean, it's really amazing the way in which immigration and immigration as an issue, a political issue in this country has shifted over the last decade or more, right? I mean, it, it used to split pretty cleanly down kind of partisan lines. You had the conservative uh, Republicans and the and the vast majority of the Republican Party who saw themselves as the kind of border security folks who wanted to, you know, make sure that the border was more secure and to keep more people out. And you had the Democrats and the liberals largely who were uh, more favorably inclined to let migrants and asylum seekers into the country. And, you know, then you had the Trump presidency come kind of take that to the extreme. And, you know, I kind of thought, I would have thought that at the end of the Trump presidency, that would have deepened that split between the, the right and the left. In fact, kind of the opposite has happened. The, the border has become so overwhelmed uh, at times with migrants, and that's part of a, a, a really a global change in migration patterns that has to do with COVID and uh, the sort of economic straits that some of these people find themselves in because, because of COVID, it, it's climate change and and changing the way economies work, It's it's dictators, it's natural disasters and the like. And so you've got all these people coming to the border and rather than that kind of amplify this split between the left and the right, what you've seen is the, is Democrats and, and people on the left, people in big cities like uh, New York and Chicago and Denver, um, have become increasingly frustrated with the number of migrants that are coming to their city, costing their city money, lots of homelessness, that kind of thing. Uh, and so w- you know, what you've seen is, is both in the public, and the polls you cited, I think were right, Ravi, but also... The politicians themselves are changing. Joe Biden is dramatically is taking dramatically different positions on how much he wants to crack down at the border, how much he wants to keep asylum seekers and refugees and others out of the country, way more than any Democrat in the last decade would have would have thought uh, was possible. Uh, so it's 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 amazing.
0: And in his first few months of o- in office, he expanded asylum, he paused deportations, he expanded parole. Uh, and uh, he used just generally more welcoming language. How much of that do you think contributed to this spike uh, in numbers that we've seen? And 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 one thing when you when we talk about spike in numbers, the numbers I see that are reported are apprehensions. So maybe help me make sense of that because when I read apprehensions, it seems like th- that's an increase in enforcement as well as increase in people attempting
1: to cross the border. Right, right. So on that latter part first, just to, the, to kind of help get the numbers set, there was a time 20, 30 years ago when people who came across the border, in that case, in those days it was mostly Mexican men, were trying to avoid capture by the border patrol, right? They would do everything they could to run away, hide, evade capture, because they knew that they were just going to be sent back across the border into Mexico. And so then the idea of apprehensions really mirrored the activity that was going on at the border you you know the, the number of people that they reported were the number of people they caught nowadays what's happened is that most of the people that are coming across are asylum seekers most of them are from other countries venezuela uh, honduras nicaragua el salvador haiti uh, even and those people aren't trying to evade the border patrol they they walk right up to the border patrol agents and say hi we're here we seek asylum we want asylum you know, because they know that by doing that you know, they get that starts that kickstarts a process uh, that a a legal process that in some cases is so backlogged and so completely out of date that they could end up staying in the country for five, six, seven years before their case is ever truly dealt with. And by then, you know, there's sort of the hope that they just stay. And so uh, so that's why apprehensions is kind of a weird number. That's still what they call it. But at the end of the day, what it really means is it's a measure of kind of the flow of people. And in December of last year, there were like 300,000 apprehensions. In other words, 300,000 people that came over and went up to a border patrol agent and said, here we are. I remember years not that long ago when 300,000 was the number for the entire year, right? So you can see the scale of like how far it's changed. And you said that the 300,000 number you mentioned is in what
0: period of time?
1: just December of last year. Oh my God. Just, now that's wow. along the entire border, but still it's a huge number, especially, you know, in context of the, you know, of the previous numbers.
0: Oh, we did. so, okay, then on the Biden policy in the beginning. So we'll get to where he is now, which is, is in quite a different place, it seems to me. But was he more permissive in the beginning? And
1: did that contribute to people wanting to cross the border? So the answer to the, the, the first question is, yes, he was much more permissive. I mean, he came in, his campaign was all about Kind of reversing the Trump era policies that you know I document a lot in the book, but also that people had obviously talked about a lot—the very sort of tough, tough at the border policies. Um, He he started reversing some of those, and as you say, his language, his rhetoric was was much much different. The answer to the second question is a really tough one, right? The question of did that drive, you know, did was there a kind of invitation, you know, not intended, but a sort of unintended invitation that that rhetoric, that more permissive rhetoric, like encouraged people to come. There's a huge debate in the community, in the, in the immigration community about whether that, whether and the extent to which that matters, right? Like, you know, there are some people who will say, absolutely, you know, the, the, the folks down there, if they get the message from the United States that they're welcome to come and that they're going to be able to stay and that they're more likely to be able to stay for a long time they'll hop on a train or march across the Darien Gap or, you know, hire a coyote, which is the name for these sort of smuggler types. There's other people who say, look, you know, most of these people who come are are really (laughs) at their wits end. You know, they're either truly threatened by gangs or truly threatened by economic starvation or poverty or what have you. And you don't just kind of up and leave your life. And that whether or not, You know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, no matter what they say one way or the other, lots of these people are coming driven by forces that have nothing to do with what Joe Biden says. So I think it's my sense, my, you know, after 15 years of covering this topic, my sense is that there's a mix of both. Um, It's really hard to pull out in any sort of scientific way what, you know, how much of one or the other.
0: And so, you know, bringing it to present day on February 21st, it was reported uh, I think, first, by your paper, that the Biden administration is considering an executive order that could prevent people from crossing over from claiming asylum. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this measure because I think this is this is a pretty significant development. They would do this based on what authority?
1: So back up. Let's back up one little step, which is that they wanted to do this. For the through, last legislation. Months, yeah. through legislation through yeah. legislation right so that so if they had been able to do it through legislation the authority would have been very clear there would have been a new federal law that did pass a version of which did pass the senate but then you know kind of died in the house where the republicans are in charge so given the fact that the legislation died they they've now are at least considering whether or not they can do something similar through executive action some sort of executive order there is a provision in the Immigration and Naturalization Act of, I'm forgetting the date, but you 1952, know,
0: 1952,
1: I think. Yeah. 52, maybe. There you go. There's a provision in that federal law that gives the president of the United States the unfettered ability to keep a person out of the borders of the United States if he or she deems the person to be a potential threat, essentially. That's not the exact language, but um, it is so broad that when immigration has been before the Supreme Court justices, there was a justice that once wrote that, that that law exudes authority for the president when it comes to immigration. So it's called, I mean, to the geeks in the immigration world, it's it's a section known as 212F, F is in Frank, 212F. And that is the provision that sort of broadly gives the president, and then you can sort of see why it would make sense, right? Like if you're the president and there's some terrorist or some person that you think is a threat, then you would want the president to be able to say, no, 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 that person can't come in. The question is whether or not, and this has not been fully tested in the courts, the question is whether or not you can take that authority, that the president can take that authority, and more broadly, you know, sort of big swath say, okay, well, I'm going to designate this whole group of people to not be able to come in the country, or I'm going to shut the whole border down completely. And that's not, clear. You know, there's been rulings in both ways. Donald Trump tried to ban Muslims, remember, from Africa, from certain countries in Africa. He tried three different times. The Supreme Court kept saying, no, 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 you don't have that authority. And then on the third try, the court said, well, okay, the way it's phrased now, you can do it. But it's unclear. What's the lesson of
0: that series of jurisprudence? Because I've seen uh, ACLU lawyers quoted in the press saying that those decisions said that the administration can't discriminate on the basis of how somebody enters the country. But then I've read other articles who talk about how the sort of lesson learned was that he was discriminating on the country itself that people were coming from. And that was the problem. How what was left standing after all of that jurisprudence?
1: The first attempt that Trump made to sort of Institute his Muslim ban, which was I think five or six days after he took office, right, right at that first the Friday of that first week, was really very. Uh, it was like a simple one pager that basically said people from this country can't come in. Basically, um, and what the courts base said is that that had a series of problems. Right, first of all, you know, it didn't it didn't follow the right procedures for actually issuing such an executive order, but it also said it didn't have a process that the government could effectively go to to say, here are the criteria for when a country would be subject to this ban or the people from that country would be subject to the ban versus maybe another country that might have people that might not be subject to the ban. And so throughout the course of the year, Trump's people kept trying to redo the thing to address those concerns. They eventually got to a place which Trump actually hated because he didn't think it was strict enough but it basically set out a whole series of parameters, and it basically said, like, if a country in Africa can institute the following, like, security measures to make sure that they're checking passports and checking history of association with terror groups and the like, if they meet these criteria, then they then their citizens won't be banned. But if they fall short of those criteria, then they will. And so it it took it kind of away from identifying people based on their ethnicity or their, you know, sort of country of origin. And it was rather sort of, well, it's no, it's a security measure.
0: It is an odd thing to do, though, in the in the sense for asylum, because it's like the idea that somebody seeking asylum in the United States has to go through all these security checks to leave their country kind of defeats the whole purpose of asylum, right? Like you kind
1: of have to escape through other means. Totally. And in fact, there are U.S. laws that have been on the books for 50, 60, 70 years about asylum, but there are also kind of international treaties and international conventions, the Geneva Convention, et cetera, that all sort of begin from the premise that the way asylum works is that when you step foot onto the country that you are trying to escape to, that country is obligated to consider your request. Not to, you know, not to necessarily approve it, right? They, you know, the country can, can say, nope, you're not a legitimate you don't have a legitimate fear of the country that you're fleeing or or what have you, but they must consider the request. And that's why this would be so dramatic is because this would say, essentially, we're not even going to consider it.
0: You and your book, I think, go out of your way to give the Trump administration in that case as much sort of airtime as possible to explain their rationales. In certain cases, they're more sympathetic than others, which we'll get to. In this case, Obviously, the asylum system is broken, right? Like when we talk about asylum, we're talking about this, this idea that there's some kind of ordered process for <laughs> determining who these people are, but that's not
1: what's going on, right? Like this is, this is chaos, it seems. It is. And, and it's chaos kind of on both ends of the spigot, if you want. Like There are many, many people who are coming into the United States who really don't fit the definition of what a true asylum seeker is, right? Like the true asylum seeker in US law is somebody who fears prosecution in their country. It isn't just somebody who says, hey, I think I could make more working at, you know, working at a job in the United States than, you know, on my coffee farm in, you know, in the c- Central America, and I would rather live there than, you know, that's not what the system is meant for. So so on the one hand, on the, on the kind of flow in, it's definitely, Broken. There's just like tons and tons of people that are pouring in and kind of clogging that part of the system up. The real problem is on the other end, the adjudication end. The how does the United States filter out the people who are truly needy, who are truly fleeing? And I look up for the book. I I went down to the border. I went into some of these you know refugee facilities on the other side of the border in Mexico, right as where people gather. Um, and I talked to people who you know I talked to one guy. I remember who. Um, who was there with his family, three kids and a wife. And he basically said, described this scenario of like, you know, the gangs repeatedly wanting him to join their gang and kill people and what have you. And finally said, we're going to kill all your kids at the school if you don't do this. And that's the night that they left, right? So that kind of person who is truly fleeing danger for their family is is the one that the system is supposed to find and supposed to at least give a good shot at like, Hey, you might be a person who, who could stay here, but filtering those out and figuring out which are the ones that deserve and which are the ones that don't, the system has never been fully invested in. So you have too few judges, you have too few asylum officers, you have too few uh people who who you know interview these you no know, lawyer, you know, very, very few lawyers for some of these people who can't even speak English. And so the whole system bogs down to a point where you've got. Year, you know, it can take. You know, they they basically hand you a thing and say, "Come, you know, come to your court hearing in 2029 or something."
0: And this was obviously what the the legislation was meant to solve, right? It was, and we've done previous segments, so our audience will be familiar with this. But it was meant to invest at every step of the process, including detention facilities, including increased border enforcement. Uh, it also would have restricted. Um, the ability to, to of people to come through, but what's interesting here, and we won't we don't need to go through all of that because our audience will be familiar with it. But what's fascinating to me is Biden, and I want to talk a little bit about the posture here. But before we get there, they if they did this, they wouldn't have the benefit of all that
1: increased investment. So would they even be able to enforce this action? No, that's a smart question, and I think the answer is almost a hundred percent no you know, I mean, it's almost 100% that, you know, in theory, they could put, they could take this executive action a week from now. Let's assume for a minute that it doesn't get challenged immediately in court. It will, but put that aside for a minute. They don't have the resources to do this, right? Like they don't have the extra border patrol agents. They don't have the extra, uh, as you said, all of the stuff that you were talking about that your audience is familiar with. So, I think there's a real, and maybe we can get to this, or maybe this is where you want to get to at some point, but like, there's a real skepticism about whether this is truly a- Yes. Yeah, <laughs> a well, okay, okay. Well, let's just get
0: there. Yeah, let's get there now. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked to David from, who talked about the Clinton administration, and he was basically arguing that the Biden administration should pick fights with the left as a way to show that they are- You know, this is like he used school uniforms during the Clinton administration, as an example. I was in middle school, so I don't remember exactly what that was. (laughs) But I get the point that he's making as somebody who's kind of a moderate Democrat. I kind of like it when, you know, a Democrat shows that they're willing to like stand up to the sort of more extreme forces on our quote unquote side. And I do think the politics of that are pretty good, with some exceptions that I do think we should get to, because there are some huge cracks within the coalition right now. Do you think that's what's going on here? Because, like, I I also noted, like, what's notable to me is that they floated it. Like, I mean, yes, I want to give your colleagues their due that they could have scooped this, but, I'm like, the realist in me thinks that the administration was floating this for a reason. Are you able to read the tea leaves
1: here to see what they're trying to do? I don't think they would admit this, like, publicly, right? But I think that there is a great appreciation on the part of the Biden White House that, there is some political advantage to be gained by the Republican rejection of that bill, that it's the first time that the Democrats and Biden have an opportunity to point to something and say, you guys wanted to do border security and you flubbed it. You took no action. And so by actually doing something, right, issuing this executive order, it gives them the opportunity to even double down on that, right? To say, not only are you guys doing nothing, but I'm doing something, or at least trying to do something, right? And and, and in fact, I think Biden, maybe in one of his remarks even said, hinted at the fact that it would be, you know, that there would be a lawsuit about it quickly, which there would, by the way, like this fellow at the ACLU named Lee Galernt, who is one of their top immigration lawyers, like has already been quoted saying, you know, we're suing, like, the minute it comes out, right? So it is. It's a political maneuver, right? I mean, that's not to say that it doesn't have some good intentions and that maybe in some, you know, there's an idea that, like, if this were to be put into place, maybe it could it could do some help and maybe slow down, you know, some of the craziness of the border. But by and large, I think everybody sees this in Washington as a political maneuver to try to, you know, make some lemonade out of, you know, a pretty bad situation where the border has just continued to be un treated essentially you know nobody wants to do anything
0: yeah i, I remember dan crenshaw basically when he was advocating for his republican colleagues to support the legislation was saying look if this authority existed trump would have used it there's a reason why he he <laughs> didn't he wasn't able to do exactly what biden's trying to do so it'll be interesting to see this wind through the courts the other thing the administration needs to be careful about is in announcing this early from my reading Of the dynamics here because of these coyotes and other sophisticated actors, like, I mean, this is a full on industry to get people to and through the border, is that there will be a rush to get people across before any of this stuff goes into effect. And the administration needs to be careful about announcing this stuff early without actually implementing it.
1: Yeah, that happened at the very very beginning of the administration. Um, I mean again, like I think it's hard to do cause and effect is hard to be 100% certain of, but I think there's a there was a, an early surge I think in April, March and April of the of his first year in office and I think a lot of people attribute that to that same kind of thing like like let's you know, he's starting to to do some of this and let's come in and then you know, the the more then the flip side of that is what you're talking about which is the you know, if they sense that he's now going to crack down uh, you know, you want to slip in under the under the wire. I will say I will let me just say I, you know, and maybe we can you know maybe you want to save this or or we can go somewhere else with this, but I mean, I'm not a partisan, I don't pick sides, obviously, but just from experience, I and having covered the Trump years, covered immigration, written the book, the whole thing, it is hard for me to see uh, how Biden ends up thinking that he is going to be perceived as to the right of Trump on the border. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me, right? So this idea that, you know, like he's going down to the border this week, later this week, Trump is gonna be at the border the same day, there's gonna be dueling images of the two of them. This idea that the White House appears to want to pursue, which is like, oh, you know, this gives us the opportunity to show that we're the ones that are tough on the border and Trump and the Republicans are the weak ones on the border. I mean, call me crazy, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. This
0: gets to the. This is what I was discussing with From, right? Because I think what the the sort of Dick Morris theory is not that you outright the right, but that you shore up your vulnerabilities, right? So I think in that case, that's what they're trying to do. And in the case of Biden, to the extent you know, we're talking about a sophisticated messaging strategy. They would be trying to say we're the responsible adults who are trying to come together and, and create solutions around issues of national concern, while the other people are bomb throwers. That's like the sort of frame that they would probably want here,
1: right? But but uh, and and all due respect to Dick Morris and Fromm, who have who are, and, you know, smart people, especially at the time that they were kind of in the political world, the world has moved on. and I, <laughs> <Yes>. and <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, I think that, I mean, and, and, by, and what I mean by that in this case is that works when there's a middle, yes. right? Like, like that works when you can say, okay, I'm going to stake out, whether it's, you know, school uniforms or the border, I'm going to stake out the reasonable middle policy, and there's this huge group of people in the middle that that's going to appeal to, right? And I don't care about the ones on the right. I don't care about the ones on the far left, but... and. Look, maybe you know, it, this, you know, politics is a way of surprising people, and maybe it w- will. But like to me, I'm not sure where that middle group of people is. If you're, if you're a Republican and certainly a Trump Republican, like there's nothing Biden is going to say that's going to make you believe he's the reasonable person. And at the same time, he's going to piss off the AOCs. I'm sorry yes. if I can't say that on. on no, you can of but course. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, the AOCs and the left and Bernie and all that. He's going to piss them all off. So I don't know. Will it work? We'll see. Yeah, it's a big
0: question I have coming into this election is how much pragmatism will exist on the Democratic side. Because I would say coming into 2020, there was a lot. People were willing to stomach anything to beat Trump, whereas now I don't see it. And we'll get to Gaza and Michigan, which is happening tonight and all of that. I truly believe with my heart, I spent a lot of years in Democratic politics, that this coalition is frayed to a material respect. uh, And and i do like although i do think that there are independents up for grabs like he's gonna have to run the tables on those independents you know he he barely won last time Biden. you know people forget this with with a totally intact coalition and massive turnout so i do think he has issues here. and none
1: of the uh i i think if you look at the constituencies in his base and that we're talking biden now obviously like whether it's blacks hispanics women young people Muslim you know Arabs. there was there, I think it's fair to say if I if my memory serves like that there was you know some some doubt and some frustration that you know that maybe somebody like a Bernie or somebody else didn't get the nomination. but once he got the nomination, I don't get there was not the kind of serious dislike for Joe Biden that I think if you go through each one of those groups, you know, it's not monolithic, you know, each of those groups is, you know, got a whole spectrum of people, but there is, there are pockets of real deep disappointment. And in some cases, I think even dislike in all of those. And so the question is, you know, can he repair that in, on the case of the border, does the, does his position on the border like help or hurt the repairing that?
0: Yeah. The the sort of other move going on here is probably try to take your opponent's biggest perceived strength and make it a weakness, which I I do sympathize as a political, you know, from a political strategy point, like pushing that project. Now, it's never going to be a weakness with his base. So the question is, can you make it a weakness with the people who are persuadable? I think that's a good segue to talk a little bit about the reporting you did in your book, which, you know. I think it was Joe Klein who basically, in characterizing your your thesis, was that he, in a review, said that the thesis of the book is that immigration was the beating heart, I think, as Joe put it, uh, of the Trump presidency, right? Your your argument, I think, which is not hard to convince people of at this point, is that <laughs> immigration was the project of the Trump administration. It basically was what got them out of bed in the morning. It was their politics, and, and in many ways, it was their policy. In looking back, because I do think this is going to be, you know, if not the most important issue, one of the most important issues that will be debated uh, through the summer and fall. What do you think are the highlights and lowlights of the Trump administration's immigration policy looking back at what the record was? Because I think there's just so much revisionism about were apprehensions up, were they down? Did Trump succeed or did he fail? You know, people know what the thrust of his motivation was, that's for sure. Sure.
1: So, add one little thing to what client said, because I think. It was, I think, and will be again, kind of the beating heart, the actual policy kind of excitement inside a second Trump term. But I just would add one thing, which is that it's connected to grievance. For Trump, immigration wasn't just kind of a standalone issue. It was all connected to giving people who had grievances about their lives somebody to blame, right? It's similar and tied in with the trade issue for Trump. Right? You blame China because the kind of white guy in Michigan who who lost his job at the plant is pissed off and wants to know like why is my life not as good as it should be, or why can't I take my kids to Disneyland because I can't afford it? You know, and it's either you blame China or you blame the immigrants, but it's it's all tied into that question of grievance. So, you know, I do think that that it's in some ways. Also a proxy for some of these bigger issues.
0: Yeah. And the one thing I want to say on that is it's it's been something in the back of my mind for a while. Uh, I interviewed Jared Polis two years ago, and he was like, it was during the height of the inflation debate. And I, I said to him, I was like, because this is at a point where nobody like Democrats were having a hard time answering the question, what are you gonna do about inflation? And he had the simplest answer. He was like, I'm gonna I would increase immigration and I would decrease tariffs. Yeah. Right? Uh
1: <laughs> that definitely- was his answer.
0: Uh <laughs> and <right>. so <laughs> And that's a pretty simple answer, right? Uh, and a pretty bold one, uh, given the politics of that, because those are tariffs, I think. I don't know what the polling says, but it's certainly, like, I don't think the average American understands the implications of tariffs. Uh, and and as we know, immigration, has, you know, there's a valence to that, too. Both are easy to demagogue. Right? Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting to me is that I wonder if you would be getting away with this in, a, in an era where the,
1: the inflation was the topic. But I guess people can get away with anything these days politically. Yeah, and I, and it looks like, I mean, you know, knock on wood or whatever, but like it looks like immigra- uh, like inflation may not be the issue in 6 months that we thought it was going to be a year right. ago, right? Like
0: Yeah. Well, tucked into the same Gallup poll was uh, the I think the strongest number since 2020 September 2021 economically. Now, they're not they're not numbers that I think the White House is going to brag about because they're still underwater, but they're it, they're inching ever closer to positive numbers.
1: On the economy, which you know, I could imagine the White House is excited about. Of course, and then trying to figure out how to how to message and in a way that people will listen. I, to get back to your question about sort of the, the the Trump policies, I mean, I think an examination. My book really sort of ended halfway, a little bit more than halfway through the Trump administration. So there was a whole other half that you know, after the book came out, continued on. I think it's fair to say that um, there were a ton of failures, right? A ton of things that Stephen Miller and Trump tried to do on on immigration that just either backfired on them or got caught up in the courts or, um, you know, essentially didn't kind of had to be rolled back. It was all at the end tied up with COVID, right? Because they used the COVID, some some national title forty two Title 42, right? Which was a which was a health code, not an immigration code, but it allowed them to stop people from coming. Um, the wall never got built most of it. Um, so so I think, you know, looking back, there's a lot that I suspect the, you know, the Trump administration people would, if they were honest, would regret that they didn't they didn't manage to do more of what they wanted. But I do think that they shifted the conversation, right? Uh, you know, there had been prior to Trump a real sense in the Republican Party, and we write about this in our in the first, I think first chapter of our book, but that there was this whole sense after Mitt Romney lost to Obama, that, you know, part of the reason they lost was that they was that they didn't they didn't have a broad enough coalition, that they didn't include uh, Hispanics in some of these really fast growing areas of the country. Um, and that their sort of anti-immigrant, even then their anti-immigrant sort of posture and their border security posture was hurting them. And there was a lot of people in the Republican Party who took that as sort of faith on faith and were sort of moving in the direction of, okay, well, let's come together with the Democrats and with, you know, let's, let's find a solution to the dreamers. Let's find a solution to all these people who are undocumented in the country and figure out kind of what we do with them. And Trump just obliterated that part of the Republican Party. It just doesn't exist now. And so, you know, you have a whole conversation, you know, that Trump shifted to the right. And now, you know, with the frustrations of the big city mayors and the, you know, this big migrant surge, like now you have even the Democratic Party shifting. Um, So I think if, if I were to think of a legacy of the Trump, those first four Trump years, that would be the legacy is completely shifting the conversation to the right.
0: Yeah. And you write about it like an early experience. You know, you talk about the dreamers, right? Like this experience of Durbin and Graham coming together to come up with a compromise in 2018 and thinking that they were on their way to the White House for a grand bargain. Uh, Paint this picture for us because I had forgotten all about this moment.
1: Yeah, this was, um, you know, there, there were a series of different moments that the hope had been that maybe sort of in a Nixon goes to China way that somebody like Trump, who is so known to be kind of anti immigrant, if you could get him on board with uh, some kind of a bipartisan compromise, then you then it would sail through, right? Because you'd, he'd have the chops to be able to tell the Republicans, hey, uh, this deal is okay. And Durbin and and um, Graham had had long been, you know, Graham, uh, Durbin's whole thing is the dreamers, he's, He sponsored the DREAM Act originally back more than almost 15 years ago. Graham was on board. And they went to the White House. They thought they had gotten called, I think, by Trump himself or by Jared or somebody around him. And they went thinking, okay, he's going to sign off on this deal. And they got there. They were sitting in the room. And this was the moment that Trump exploded uh, (laughs) um, about uh, he didn't want people from shithole countries. Right, right. and I think we document the scene in the book when Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin are back in the car at the end of that meeting and they just look at each other and without speaking, just knew that that was dead at that moment because because there was no way to keep this fragile coalition of liberals and conservatives together with that kind of explosion of xenophobia uh, right. in, the, in the Oval Office.
0: Right, and, and for people who uh, may have sort of forgotten this
1: debate, what, who are DREAMers? Who are dreamers, yeah. So uh, so dreamers are a particular subset of people who are in the United States in an undocumented way, right? So they don't have permission to currently be in the United States. But the, but the particular characteristic that they share is that they were all brought into the United States at a very young age, right? These are kids that maybe their parents crossed over the border either illegally or in some cases legally, and then overstayed. And maybe they were two at the time, right? The dreamers. And so, you know, most of them had a no kind of actual choice about they didn't choose to cross the border that way, because they were infants, or they were one or two years old. And then, then they were raised in the United States, speaking English, going to American high schools, elementary, middle high schools, and so many of them for a while, I think it's kind of probably less less the case now, but many of them for a while didn't even know they were undocumented, right? Their parents maybe didn't tell them, parents had jobs, you know, and so-and-so so goes to get a driver's license when they're 16 and the driver's, you know, the, the, the DMV says, well, you know, what's your social? And they don't have a social. And it's the first time that they, you know, realize, oh my gosh, I'm not a documented person. And so they've always been viewed as more sympathetic than somebody who we might think of as an undocumented person who kind of, you know, skipped the line or came here as an adult and tried to evade the law or, you know, came on a visa and then overstayed. These are people who really truly had no agency in coming and also to the extent that let's say their parents were from Bolivia or from El Salvador, these are people who if you did deport them, right? Now they're 20, 21, 22, 23 years old. If you did deport them back to El Salvador, they never lived in El Salvador, right? Not since they were, you know, babies, and so it it just had it it f- felt and feels, I think, to a lot of people like they're the most sympathetic group of folks, and 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 there's always been an effort, uh, kind of in both parties, um, to try to figure out is there some, is there some solution that could give these folks in particular a path to citizenship?
0: Yeah, and they're still in limbo, from what I understand, right?
1: Yeah, there's been, uh, you know, uh, so Obama. Uh, created this program uh, called DACA, which uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, that basically said, okay, we're not going to give you citizenship. We're not going to give you even kind of a permanent legal status, but we're going to promise for the next two years that we're not going to deport you. It's essentially protection against deportation. So you can go about your life. You don't have to be looking over your shoulder every two minutes looking for a, you know, INS agent. And then that was renewable. So every two years you could renew that. Uh, Trump vowed to kill that program. He tried to kill the program. It went up to the Supreme Court. Court basically said no. So, it, so they're in limbo. But that litigation that's been going on for years and years is still around, and it's likely to come back probably next summer, uh, wow. or th- maybe this summer, this summer. Um, and so then the question will be, you know, will the court, sort of, which is now kind of examining a different part of, that law, uh, will they, you know, ultimately get rid of it and say you can't do it? And and if so, then the decision of that the voters make about Trump versus Biden is really significant, right? Because if it is Trump, those people are probably gone.
0: I do want to move off of immigration. There are a couple other things though in your book that I wanted to highlight for our audience just as a historical points that are relevant to this election. One was um the separation policy. There's a you know nugget in there about how the separation policy and you know as you you're know, with your caveat that it's hard to point to causation, separation policies seem to coincide with this 64% decline in illegal crossings, like at sort of the height of the uh, sort of word on the separation policy, which seems to be deterring families at least, which makes Common sense. Like, obviously, if you're a
1: family, you don't want to go into the clutches of, you know, administration that would do that. And I think on the spectrum of that debate about how much policies in the US affect the flow, I think there's greater agreement that if you do something as extreme as, say, we're going to take your kids and never give them back to you, that may well be, you know, one of the things that has a bigger effect. And it probably did. It wasn't technically in effect for that long. So it's hard to, you know, migration, you know, goes up and goes down all the time. And for reasons that you can't quite tell. So because it was only in place for a few, you know, six weeks or what have you across the board, like it just, it's hard to know 100%, but I I agree with you. makes sense.
0: And the, you know, the other thing I'd totally forgotten about was this idea about the public charge rule. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this was Stephen Miller's kind of, Holy grail. Stephen Miller was obviously Trump's uh, kind of immigration guru and 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 kind of the lead person on immigration for Trump. And he long believed that people who came to the United States from elsewhere, uh, legally, in addition to illegally, obviously, but legally, um, who couldn't sustain themselves financially should not be allowed into the country. And there had been this v- ancient law that be- basically... Uh, I think from the 1800s, that basically had this idea, but it had been long since kind of discarded from use. And he spent, he had the Department of Homeland Security and the various agencies spend uh, months and months and months producing, I think, a 450 page new regulation to kind of revitalize the public charge rule, which would basically impose a series of financial tests so that if somebody came and didn't have, some proven ability to make money and contribute to the United States, they would essentially be denied truly cutting to the heart I mean, we've been talking a lot about illegal immigration, right and people coming across the border uh, in an, a kind of an unorderly manner. this would this cut at the heart of legal immigration, right? The whole idea of kind of what does it if you go through the proper procedures, you know, what does it take to stay in the United States? And it it got tied up in courts and never got implemented as well. Um, I think it's one of those things that if Trump gets back into office um, and Miller is by his side, which I suspect will be the case, that will be the first thing they will, uh, he, anyway, Miller, um, will, try to, will try to revive again.
0: Yeah. And we don't have enough time for this, but there was another part of your book where you talk about Miller's obsession with using national security as the justification to decrease asylum and that there was this you know, back and forth between him and members of the National Security Council who <laughs> felt like the data didn't support that, that, essentially that there haven't been because of the, you know, like if you're a terrorist, you're not going to present yourself to authorities uh, at right. the border, <laughs> right? Which is how people are getting in using asylum. Uh, and that that was just an interesting wrinkle. We, we don't need to go into that. But I think, you know, we mention all of this because we're pointing the way towards the future. Like, what does it look like? If Trump gets reelected, but also what are the things he's going to be talking about? What record is he going to be running on? You basically put Biden's record on immigration against Trump's record on immigration, and it's going to be a a fascinating back and forth. I don't suspect it will be as coherent as your explanation, (laughs) so we'll see what's going. We'll we'll see what happens there. Um, It's it's at least one of the areas where. I don't think Trump needs to embellish to get what he wants out of our politics, right? What Trump is going to want to say is what his intentions are. This is sort of the Scott Adams theory of Trump, that the voters don't care what he actually gets done. They care what his intentions are. And in many ways, the Democrats are saying he's going to be the dictator that he says he's going to be. So in a weird way, Trump might own that. And he might be like, and he basically, actually, when he said he was going to be a dictator on day one, I think he was referring to the border, right? right. So he- He was. Yeah. So I do think that he's almost going about it honestly at this point, (laughs) on his immigration. Well, and
1: he's going to, and he's, and he is the ultimate in campaigning on emotion, right? So, like when he goes down to the border, when Trump goes down to the border on Thursday, I guess, um, we already know that he's going to make a big, big deal about a a murder in Georgia that was allegedly perpetrated by somebody who was a, a, a migrant or somebody who was undocumented in the United States. And so you can sort of see the, you know, the two sides of the kind of campaigning, right? You can imagine Trump like railing about the dangers of migrants killing little old ladies in Georgia and, you know, Biden talking about, you know, kind of effective policy executive orders and sort of blaming Congress for not, you know, passing legislation, which, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of people legitimately who could look at those two things and say, gee, that Biden sounds a lot more responsible. Um, But, That's not often how American politics works. (laughs) since. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I kind of wonder. Before I let you go, I
0: want to talk about this article you wrote. So um, Gaza looms large right now, uh, not just on the global stage, but also domestically. Let's start with the substance here, which is uh, a deal seems possible here to at least cease hostilities for a period of time.
1: I think so. It was interesting yesterday, Biden, in a kind of offhand response to a question from one of my colleagues who was with him, said that he expressed real optimism that we could have a, 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 a pretty substantial ceasefire as soon as next Monday, right? Less than a week. The thing that they are discussing is, I think, a two-part uh, deal in which, uh, you know, uh, Fighting would stop for maybe four or five weeks initially, and that would accompany maybe the release of, you know, three dozen, 40, 45 of the remaining hostages. There's various estimates, but about 100, or 120 hostages still left. Assuming that that held, there then would, you know, be a phase two where you would continue the pause for another several weeks. You'd have more hostages, hopefully all of the hostages released. Biden was way more optimistic than sort of folks have been privately. And I think that's why it made a lot of news. Uh, Today, everybody else has been not so optimistic. And Hamas sort of said, no, we're not close. And Israel said, that's ridiculous. We're not close. And, you know, um, the folks in Qatar and Egypt and elsewhere have sort of said, have sort of been quiet. So, I mean, I think we all kind of hope that they're close, but that's, that's where things stand.
0: Yeah, well, what's hard for me to understand here is like how could a ceasefire be close when Netanyahu said Sunday that Israeli forces are going to invade Rafah regardless of any ceasefire and hostage right. deal? He says <laughs> it has to be done. He says because total victory is our goal, total victory is within reach. Total victory doesn't sound like somebody who's ready to sign a ceasefire agreement.
1: No, but I guess I would um, I, I would posit two thoughts on that. Um, one, I, I think, and you know, you obviously have been. Um, involved in politics long enough to know, you know, there are different audiences that people talk to, and that strikes me. Those comments and the comments that Netanyahu has made over the last, you know, several weeks all strike me as largely speaking to a domestic political audience inside Israel, right? Like he he is struggling to hold together this coalition of which he is the leader of, but just precariously, and so he's. So that's part of it. The other thing I would say, and I'm a I'm a poker player. I play poker not professionally, obviously, but like I play poker a lot and play in poker tournaments. And I think there's some assessment, at least within the US government, that part of what Netanyahu has been trying to do with the Rafa comments is to strengthen his hand, right? Is to sort of send the message that to to Hamas, like this is what you, this is what will happen if we can't reach a deal, right? Like he's not putting it that way because that would be you know, that that would sort of show weakness. But it's like he, he's demonstrating that's his position that he's poised at any moment to jump into Rafa. Like, I mean, that's that was right. He was about to go into Rafa weeks ago Um, and it hadn't happened yet. And I think that may be because he's 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 trying to convince Hamas this is what's going to happen if we don't make a deal.
0: Yeah, that's what Nanyahu's doing. Yeah, the uh- so uh we'll see. So,
1: okay. And, you know, and the final point on this is the
0: domestic politics, which, you know, tonight, uh, I believe is Michigan primary. And the last poll I saw said that 9% of people uh, who are answering polls are saying that they will vote uncommitted, which is a an effort uh, by uh, pro-Palestinian organizers, uh, led by Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman from Michigan and others who want to send a message to Biden. I would say nine yeah, percent. I know there's different ways people are going to spin that, right? Like when be, some people could be like, "Well, it's like a Marion Williamson number," and the other part of me is like, "Well, the difference between that and a Marion Williamson number is the Marion Williamson number isn't relevant in November, whereas right. this nine percent <laughs> is this nine percent could be durable." And so it does strike me as a, and it, it doesn't even need to be nine percent to be durable. If it's one percent, two percent, it could make the difference. Uh, And so it does strike me as an effective message. Uh, What it yields, I'm unsure about. It probably is already yielding some sort of softening of the Biden administration's pro-Israeli stance, I would imagine. But it's like another thing where you can't really point to the causation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think you're totally, your analysis is totally right. I think the big question is whether, these people, as frustrated as they are, would come back to the in the you know to the fold. Um, you know, in November, um, it clearly isn't going to deprive Biden of the nomination. There's no threat of that. Y- you've seen Biden and his people take seriously the the anger. They've sent you know kind of administration officials, campaign officials, to various like community meetings in Michigan and in Dearborn, which is where a lot of the Palestinian Americans live in Michigan you know, those meetings have not gone very well, frankly, and have been, you know, sort of denounced by some in the community. Um, you know, you see quotes all the time of people saying, like, it doesn't matter. I will never vote for him again. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter that. what he does. Yeah. I mean, we'll see, right? Like, and and I think to cut him some slack, to cut any president some slack, right? Like, there's a, there's a, a real question of whether you should let, pol- if you're president of the United States and you're dealing with something as awesome, not in a good way, but as in a kind of you know, as, as dramatic and awesome as a war, like, do you really want to let your principles be guided by political considerations, right? I mean, it obviously happens, it happens to every president, but like, I don't know, you know, that, that Biden, I mean, I think Biden is stubborn. And I suspect that um, while he wants to address their anger, I'm not sure that he just, you know, is going to sort of jump off the cliff and say, okay, well now we abandon Israel, right? Like, so it's a, it's a much more nuanced kind of, and you've seen, you know, his policy towards Israel and the whole Israel Gaza thing has shifted over the four months or whatever since October 7th. And that's partly because of the facts on the ground, right? 20 or 30,000 people dead in Gaza, like that's nothing, you can't ignore that. And so, but whether or not his, that transition has been too slow for people in, in Michigan and elsewhere, that's, we'll see.
0: It does, you know, This I'll end on this, which is a counterfactual I've been thinking about a lot, which is in a world where Biden's not running, I'm curious to see, you know, what his, even like what his rhetoric on and policy is on Israel, uh, what his, uh, what the resistance to him on things like the immigration bill would look like, uh, and what the Hunter Biden uh, investigations would look like. You know, these are just things I I wonder, I mean, I'm, I'm on record thinking it would have been wise to just do the one term as well as he could and leave the politics to the next generation. But doesn't seem like that's going to happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would have been an interesting, I, I always say to people, it would have been really interesting had he chosen not to run a year ago in January yeah. of 23. Like yeah. what what would have, you know, the kind of robust, you know, there's obviously people we, we all kind of imagine would have been in that debate, right. Gretchen Whitmer and whoever. Um, but it, it probably would have, surfaced and a really fascinating uh, democratic debate in this country. And, uh, you know, that didn't happen. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, Mike, uh, where can people, I know people can go to the pages of the New York times to find your work, anything else? Uh, obviously people should go out and, and buy border wars. Uh, it's a great primer on Trump policy on immigration and filled with tons of colorful anecdotes.
1: Uh, that's great. I'm at, I'm on, 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 what is it called now? X uh, at just at sheer M I, you know, Tweet less than I used to, uh, but good for uh, you. I'm still on. I'm still, yeah. on, I'm still technically on there. Uh, they can send an email to me through the website. Uh, I get a lot of email. A lot of um, people have their opinions about what we write, which is great. And I, I don't, I can't claim to read every single email, but I do try to read them, and I do try to respond. So,
0: well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, and for our listeners, I'll be uh, doing a debate at the American Enterprise Institute on Thursday about whether Democrats should embrace education savings accounts. So if you live in DC, check that out, but you could also watch it online, but we'll be posting the entire debate on our feed later in the week. So it will be our, the equivalent of our Thursday episode, which we'll put it up as quickly as you can, probably Friday morning. So you could hear me actually debating, I know we're called the last debate, but you hear me actually debating my fellow Democrats over education policy. Um, and it's very much in the spirit of this podcast, because we're going into the belly of the beast of the right wing to have that uh, discussion and, and are welcomed there. Uh, remember to leave voicemails three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. Now that I'm stateside again, um, I'm planning to go through those voicemails in a special episode soon. But thank you, Mike, very
1: much. Hope to have you back soon. Absolutely loved it. That was a great conversation.